0: Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go.
1: It's a path of you're on a tear and then all of a sudden you hit an ugly duckling stage because you need to keep investing. And if you really want to do it right, it's investing ahead of the growth. I think so many growth businesses make the mistake. They hire that regional manager At 15 locations, after everything's already fallen apart, as opposed to our model, where we hire in a market before we build restaurant number one.
0: Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. 50 locations in 15 years. That's massive growth. Snooze is a restaurant born from the dreams of two brothers that became the mission of one of the best operators this industry has ever seen. Meet David Berzin, the CEO of Snooze, who took a good business and scaled it into a great company. In our conversation today, we talk about what it takes to scale a concept centered around community, sustainability, and profitability.
1: Yeah. I mean, John and Adam Schlegel, I think the best thing that they did right is they had no preconceived notions about what breakfast should be. And even though John had deep experience in fine dining in the restaurant business, I think when it came to being an entrepreneur, as far as site selection or what the menu should be, he really had no constraints and wasn't really trying to emulate or copy some specific model. So he said, Hey, I'm going to do this chef driven breakfast." Which had never been done before. I'm going to throw in a full bar. I'm going to have a really fun culture. And it clicked. I always say that the best restaurants are really this kind of intangible, unexplainable mix of food ambiance and people. All restaurants have food ambiance on people, but then some fail and some are really successful. So I think John was able to really hit on that. And the first time I saw Snooze, My first impression and the thing I thought to myself was, this is so clever. No one's done anything different with breakfast in this country
0: in 30 years. Let's talk about that. What was your professional path that led to Snooze?
1: Sure. I was a partner in a business called Paradise Bakery, so I kind of had an entrepreneurial life before kind of uh, what I would call hired gun life, (laughs) (laughs) coming in to run a business as a CEO for hire. And I had done that since college. I had worked at Paradise Bakery, I went back to grad school, I finished, I partnered with the two founders of Paradise Bakery, we started to grow the brand, and I was able to pick up a lot of ownership through that, and I just loved it. It fit every part of my personality. I think probably like your own experience, people are like, why are you in that business? It's so difficult, but if you're a person that has a true desire to serve and loves being with the general public, it can be a blast. And look from a business perspective, restaurants actually can be pretty darn good. In the real world, back pre-COVID, I used to say that yeah, it's a difficult business, but when you have a model that works, like the predictability of sales and cash flow is there. So, not that complex at all. But yeah, I spent 19 years at Paradise Bakery. We sold the business to Panera Bread, and I spent 4 years working at a big giant public company. And although I knew that it wasn't for me, ultimately, I always say that I had learned as much in that four years as I had in my previous 19 as an
0: entrepreneur. I think you bring up a great point, And I'm super curious. What did you learn over that four years? I mean, that's a major operation.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you're an entrepreneur, you're kind of in your head and you're figuring things out on your own and you don't really know how the rest of the world does it, right? Sure, I agree. And Paradise Bakery was great. We had this model that worked, that was super high touch, super high culture, yet from a system standpoint and a process standpoint and a reporting standpoint and all those things that you really need when you start to scale a business, Panera had those things in measure. So really being able to come in and see how they scaled, what departments were needed, what I call them kind of pipelines for growth they had in place in order to really scale a business.
0: So 4 years passes. You walk away from Panera. You have almost 20 years on this entrepreneurial journey and then like this super billion dollar corporate existence for <laughs> 4 years and what did you want to do next?
1: Yeah, so I knew when my deal, my contract was up with Panera, I knew I wanted to go do something small again. I always loved that kind of small entrepreneurial phase. And I kinda had to look in the mirror and say, It my true core, I am an entrepreneur. So kind of went out there and I looked for a business to buy, to run, to invest in, and I really spent eighteen months looking all around the country for what I thought was just this perfect fit for me Mm -hmm. and a perfect concept. And I'd spent the previous part of my life loving what I did every day, working for a brand that I was really proud of. And I wanted to do that. It's funny, a guy from the Harvard Business Review had written an article that really resonated with me, and it was called Heart, Smarts, Guts, or Luck, meaning that to be a great entrepreneur, you have to have one of those four things. And I always knew that I was a heart guy. Like, I have to love what I'm doing or I'm not happy every day. So Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time looking. I was getting pretty frustrated. And then a friend from New York knew John and Adam Schlegel and had said, I think you should go meet these guys. And I literally drove down. I was living in the mountains with my family. We had moved from Arizona after paradise. And I literally drove down the next day and walked in saw my first snooze and said, this is it. This is the business. This is exactly what I've been looking for.
0: So I'm curious to know from both perspectives. So when getting the opportunity to run this business, what did you think you were going to bring to the table? What do you think you're best in the world at is really what I'm trying to get at.
1: I've got a lot of experience in scaling businesses and keeping culture. I think I have a reputation in the industry of working with founders that are, Real kind of all over the place entrepreneurs and kind of (laughs) bringing their idea and understanding the pieces that have to come together in order to scale a business. And it's funny. I met John and Adam. We were meeting in the restaurant, but we had pulled into the parking area at the same time, got out of the car, shook hands. And the first question that Adam asked me was, can you grow a business and keep a culture? And my answer was immediately yes but you've got to grow your business the right way. And that's what I think I bring to the table and am particularly good at and just passionate about. There's a lot of people that are good at things, but if you don't bring that passion and if you don't really love it, it rarely comes to fruition.
0: And then on the other side of that coin, what opportunity did you see at Snooze? What was in it for you? Sure. So first of all, great concept. I mean, I showed up to Snooze on a
1: Saturday morning there had to be 50 people out front waiting for breakfast. And my first thought was, okay, who waits for breakfast, right? (laughs) And I suppose if you're an architect, you go in and you look at the design. And if you're a chef, you go in and you look at the food. And for me, I was really noticing how the people, the guests react to the business, to the servers, to how this whole concept came alive. And it was incredible. The amount of energy and the passion that the individuals that were working there had and the passion that the guests had, the connectivity to this business was something I had never seen before, even in my own business. So for me, that's when I said, I'm all in on this.
0: And so you show up your first day at work and I'm assuming you have an agenda, right? Like these are the, (laughs) uh, right? (laughs) We all do. Well, you know, one of the beauties of being a born leader is you walk in and you see obvious areas for improvement based on your own values and your own metrics. So when you walked into Snooze on that first day, what were your priorities?
1: My priorities, first and foremost, were just to stop and learn. I really had to keep focused every morning when I got out of bed saying, take your time and learn this brand deeply. Just because I saw something as an outsider didn't mean I necessarily understood what made it tick. So I really did buckle down and spent probably the first six weeks in the restaurants. We had six restaurants at the time. I spent a lot of time working in every restaurant, working all the different positions, really understanding it. I was brought in to grow this business. So my first question was, okay, guys, what is it you want to grow? We have six restaurants. They're all vastly different, as entrepreneurs tend to do. (laughs) There were not a lot of similarities in process, so... How do we bring all these things together and really decide who are we going to be when we grow up? There's really no better way to say that. And my second agenda, piece of my agenda was really to start taking these things that made this brand special because it was so special. I really thought to myself, as long as I don't screw this thing up, we're going to be pretty successful. So I wanted to memorialize and really take note of all the things that did differentiate snooze as a brand. And an example of that is John and Adam said that first question, can you grow and keep a culture? And I said, okay, well, what's your culture? Well, it's kind of this and it's kind of that. And I just cut them off and said, look, guys, if we can't talk about it, we can't train it. We can't teach it. And until we can do that, we really haven't earned the right to grow. So let's start understanding who we are and what makes us tick earn the right to grow. And then probably the third thing is just to start to build these pipelines for growth, which for a growth brand, I guess I would phrase it to say, my goal was to take it from a restaurant company that grows to a restaurant growth company. Okay. The difference being, you know, an entrepreneurial business, when we have enough cash, we'll open another restaurant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Quality to us is lack of making mistakes instead of really driving at quality and educating around quality. So those pipelines are really, you know, I knew we needed a real estate pipeline, right? We had to find great locations. We needed a people pipeline. We have to find great people. If you're going to get great people, we need this training pipeline. We have to be able to train the people we bring in. We need field leadership as we scale regional managers, district managers, We need our infrastructure, which we call our mothership and always have. We need supply chain and we need capital. And only when you really have very clearly delineated pipelines and all the pieces are kind of flowing smoothly, does everything come together the way it should. So when we bought the business from the founders, the business was making quite a bit of money. And I had to go to my private equity sponsors and say, look, guys, I'm going to take this giant Number and it's going to get to almost zero because aside from me, there's no one here, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we had to hire trainers and supply chain and accountants and operators and really put all these pieces in place. And now at 51 restaurants, you know, I think our mothership has 60 plus people working there, including Mm -hmm. marketing and real estate and it takes a lot of people. And that's why growing can be difficult. Back in the Paradise Bakery days, when I was more of an entrepreneur, my wife used to say to me, I don't get it. We have 12 restaurants now and we're making less money than we did <laughs> when we had two.
0: Like, explain this to Amen. me. Amen. Well, let's talk about that. So 15 years to 50 locations. Massive growth. Massive. Arguably uncomfortable growth. What were the growing pains there? And like during those really difficult years where I'm sure you were just bleeding money, what was that North Star? How did you know you were going to hit these targets? What were the KPIs you were tracking? How did you know when it was time to grow again and again? What did that roadmap look like? That was like 12 questions. Start wherever you like. So first of
1: all, my mantra that I'm always telling my team is, We are not in the business of growing restaurants. We are in the business of operating restaurants. So every restaurant that we build has to perform, right? So it was really building an operating team and getting the right players on the bus. As we scaled the business, I knew just from my experience that, look, we're going to go through some ugly duckling stages. And growing a business is not this smooth, linear path. It's a path of... You're on a tear and then all of a sudden you hit an ugly duckling stage because you need to keep investing. And if you really want to do it right, it's investing ahead of the growth. I think so many growth businesses make the mistake. They hire that regional manager at 15 locations after everything's already fallen apart, as opposed to our model where we hire in a market before we build restaurant number one. So just a lot of ugly duckling stages to get through. We spent a lot of money making investments that had return on invested capital. Whether those were people, whether it was building, whether it was just mistakes we made in the learning curve that made us better. All of those pieces kind of added up to where we are today.
0: Let's talk about those mistakes. If you were talking to an independent restaurateur that is ambitious looking to grow? What are the mistakes that you would have them avoid that maybe you made or you saw other people make?
1: Yeah, I think first of all, it's just getting out over your skis, right? So what is smart growth? And again, this is a business that had a great culture, has a great culture that we don't want to mess up or lose. So my first people used to ask me and laugh at me when they said, how did you figure out your first real estate strategy for snooze? And my answer was, it has to be within a two-hour flight of Denver. When you think about it, again, we're in the business of operating restaurants, just like you were. And I wanted to be where if we opened a restaurant in Dallas and we had an emergency, we could jump on a plane, be down there in the morning and fly home that night if we had to, right? And so many restaurants get out over their skis. They're based in Colorado, let's say, and Somebody in Florida, a developer, saw their concept in Miami and said, oh, we love your concept. Come to Miami. I'm going to give you a great deal on your space. And they go there, and it's a nightmare, right? It's the other side of the country. They have no operating team set up to run the business. And we always say, look, real estate is all about being strategic, not opportunistic. So many people are opportunistic. So
0: Absolutely. Myself included. I
1: always say beware of the landlord that's offering you the most cash you've ever seen because there's <laughs> prob- there, there, there's most definitely a reason for it, right?
0: Amen. Prior to the pandemic, I could barely use my iPhone. I'm a restaurateur, not a tech guru. But over the last two years, we've seen that tech can play a vital role in helping us make more money and save money. And that tech can show up at some pretty unlikely places like your kitchen sink. Dawn Professional is a detergent and degreaser that can help reduce your labor expense and your overhead on cleaning supplies through leveraging the latest technological innovation in cleaning products. Dawn Professional multi-service heavy-duty degreaser is specifically formulated to cut grease two times faster versus the leading food service degreasers. While Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent cleans 58% more pots and pans per sink, reducing sink changeover versus the leading competitor's professional dish though. Save time and money by upgrading to Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent and Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy Duty Degreaser from P&G Professional. Let's talk about company culture in action and what it's like to scale. So, I think that we can do this instead of talking about it in the abstract by talking about what your company culture is, which is what you do, not what you say. So can you talk to me about this snooze changemaker board?
1: Yeah. So let me tell you about our culture first. So we have a compass and lots of people that have seen snooze, they see jacks on the wall, which is kind of part of our decoration. Internally, that is known as our snooze compass. And at the top of that compass are guests because guests are our true north. And then at the bottom of that compass, are snoozers. So those two coming together create everything that we do. And then we're all about sustainability, individuality, hiring people that are the best of the best, being involved in our community, having a passion for what we do, and serving craveable food, which is always first and foremost. So sustainability and community are a huge part of our internal culture and what we do. And when I go to orientations, and ask people why they chose to work at Snooze, so many of them will basically answer and say, because you believe what I believe. And if you're going to work in the restaurant business, and you still want to feel like you're making a difference in the world, Snooze is a great place to work. So we have a change maker board. And that is a group of snoozers from all over the business. And it's GMs, AGMs, hourly employees, and it's some of these people have been around Eight to 12 years. And we just believe that serving breakfast should have a higher purpose. And this group comes together to really think strategically how do we continue to strengthen our impact in the world? We're a 1% business, meaning we give 1% of everything we make back to our local communities and in kind donations. And that happens at the restaurant level. We recycle and compost 93% of everything that comes through our doors. As you know, restaurants are giant creators of waste. And as far as I know, we're one of the few restaurant businesses that actually does this. And I remember in the early days, we actually write this into our leases, that we have to have composting and the landlord has to provide this. And we were doing a deal with Mace Rich, which is still one of the largest real estate owners in the country. And they said, you know what? No one has ever asked us this before. And we won't do a lease unless we get it. We have to be able to do the things that we believe are kind of authentic to ourselves.
0: Altruism aside, I think that so many people are going to listen to this and they're going to say, how do you do that in practical application? I'm netting out 4% a year in my full service restaurant. So practically speaking, how do you bake in good works and everything that you do for your team and your community? into a profitable business model that still gives you not only the ability to survive, but the ability to continue growing.
1: It is expensive, the things that we do. I mean, I just told you we're giving away 1% off the top, which this year will be close to $2 million. Composting is expensive, but it's something that we are committed to and we believe is timely and important to our guests. So we believe that it's relevant. All these pieces come together. We get passionate people who choose to work at Snooze versus other businesses. I believe much better people because of these things we do. So we're spending it here, but we're making it up with these great employees. When you have great team members, they attract guests that are ravers and create frequency amongst guests. They create that. Look, at the end of the day, if you're a restaurateur, I don't care how big your company is, you could be Darden, you could have a ton of executives, you could bring in all these strategic thinkers. No matter what we do, everything comes down to how a guest feels after they walk out your door having eaten breakfast, lunch, dinner, whatever it is you serve, right? It all comes down to that. So we spend here, we make it up with better snoozers, it comes back to us in frequency And in our segment, we are the volume leader by far. We're not the biggest breakfast company out there, but the next closest national growing brand that has even 300 more units than Snooze is still more than a million dollars behind us in sales. Wow. So to be able to say that's pretty special, and we believe that it all starts with who we are and it's part of our DNA.
0: Let's talk about going into new markets. Let's talk about marketing in general. It seems like it's a central focus for snooze, whereas what you see out of most restaurant operations, it's an afterthought, right? It's something that you get to when you have time. But for you guys, marketing seems baked into, storytelling seems baked into this snooze business model. Can you talk to me about that? Look, I'm not a marketing guy.
1: I think my skill set is being able to hire great marketers. It's very difficult to be in this business today without sharing your story. And look, I can barely keep up. I'm a Facebook generation guy. I'm still trying to figure out Instagram. But now my daughter tells me no one's on Instagram. Everyone's on TikTok. (laughs) It's difficult for me to stay ahead. But we hire some amazingly bright young people that really tell stories that we believe will resonate to guests.
0: When it comes to marketing, I think what we've all figured out is we're not really competing on food and beverage, right? We're competing on ideology. And so you find yourself in an interesting position because this company is definitely yours, right? But you didn't found it. And so I'm curious to know, would you say that you are holding the torch for the founders and carrying that vision forward? Or would you say that over the last, However many years it's been that this has become your vision and your interpretation of their initial dream, I would say I am carrying
1: Snooze's vision forward. And one of the important pieces we live in this reality where we have twenty six hundred employees. So to tell the story of John and Adam somewhat falls on deaf ears. They're never going to meet John and Adam. They're never going to see John and Adam. But I think John and Adam created something very special. So. What we did is, and I said this very early on, we need to change it from the John and Adam story to the snooze story. This is what we do. And look, we'll honor John and Adam by doing that because it's really making sure that this thing never falls apart and that the ideas that they created the business upon will always be there.
0: Let's talk about survival. Let's talk about thriving and let's talk about pricing. So how much... Will a human being pay for an omelet five years from now?
1: I don't know. What I can tell you is what we will charge for an omelet five years from now, (laughs) right? So if we're charging $12.50 for an omelet today, there's a good chance we're going to be charging $16 plus for that omelet in five years. And I think this is really the hardest part of our industry right now. We're seeing commodity inflation that the world hasn't seen in 40 years. We're seeing the lowest level of consumer confidence in 40 years. Third-party delivery is alive and well, but it's also very expensive, especially for independent entrepreneurs. A packaging alone, fees to DoorDash, fees to Uber Eats are very expensive. There's not much margin there, if any margin. So everybody is taking price. Everybody's taking price. And I think you have to take price. You have to take price to cover rising labor costs. If you can't cover your input costs in the long run, it might not be immediately. You will always go out of business. So you have businesses like Chipotle raising prices 10%. And the question is when the music stops, when the world starts to get back to normal and demand normalizes, are you and I going to go out and pay 15, 16 bucks for a bowl of rice and chicken? I don't know the answer to that. And that is my one hope for casual dining in that I still believe people will always pay for experiences and going out and breaking bread with other people in great restaurants that make them feel good. That will always be there. But to your point, the world's getting very expensive. And right now, you can take your family out to a quick casual chain and spend 60 bucks without blinking. That's a lot of money.
0: It is. And, you know, what I struggle with is if that omelet costs twelve fifty dollars today, that omelet should realistically cost $15 today because the average net profit of a full service restaurant realistically is probably nothing. But if you look at the statistics, it's 6%. And 6% isn't a rainy day fund. Maybe that's enough for you to pay your rent at the restaurant and a mortgage if you're not working at scale. It's a difficult place to be. And so there isn't enough money being saved in order to be able to do the things that you would want to do as a business owner, whether it's run a green operation or subsidized health care or offer a 401k to your employees. I would argue that restaurateurs, all things being equal, are probably some of the most thoughtful employers there are. We just lack the funds in order to operate in accordance with our values. And so I would argue that that $16 burger that people are scoffing at today should probably be an $18 to $20 burger today at an appropriate margin that would liken itself to any other industry on the planet. So where do we go for here when we're still probably not set up for success?
1: Right. And it's a double-edged sword because as you raise prices, traffic declines, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Well, and that's it.
0: That's the fear,
1: right? That's the fear. You're going to scare people away. And look, volume in this industry cures everything. If you look at the public markets and the best private companies, for years, uh, 20% restaurant level margin was considered best in class, right? Mm -hmm. Today, I would argue it's 18% would be considered best in class. For this first period, all the big public restaurant companies, they're reporting under 12%. For them, they can get away with it because they still have access to capital. At our size, if we were returning under 12%, we would no longer have access to capital and we probably couldn't grow. It's pretty rough. Margins are very tight. With all the great things in the world to invest in, Things today that I don't even understand, like Bitcoin, a restaurateur coming to you saying, hey, I'm going to open up a restaurant and I'm going to make six, seven percent. It's not that exciting a proposition.
0: And so I guess what it comes down to is messaging, right, is that this is an ongoing conversation that you, David, have to have with your base, with your patrons on an ongoing basis, kind of in the same way that gas stations have that unspoken conversation with us right? That what you pay today might not necessarily be what you pay tomorrow based on these variable expenses.
1: Yeah. And it's a difficult conversation. And I love that I'm talking to a fellow restaurateur because you understand it. There's been a lot of things in the news about how servers in Texas make $2 and 15 cents an hour, right? With tip credit. Yes, we pay our servers. We take a tip credit. So they make $2 and 15 cents an hour. But on average with tips, they make $35 an hour, which is pretty phenomenal. And that story doesn't get told. The problem is we can't afford to pay our hard of house people, the people that work in the back wages. That's difficult. So those people were paying $16, $17, $18 and rising as we speak in order to attract and maintain a great team of people. And that drives costs. And if the public doesn't understand this and they allow lawmakers to get out there and take away the tip credit, and all of a sudden we have to pay servers, now we're going to have servers you know, making 50 making $55 an hour, and it's going to be rough for the people in the back again. But we're pretty cognizant of making sure that we're paying people a living wage and we're constantly doing uh, analysis of what our people are earning more than anything because we don't want to lose people. Right? We want great people. But difficult. Does it affect where you choose to go? It does. I mean, one of the first questions we ask when looking at markets is is this a tip credit state or not? Because if it's not, our labor costs are up exponentially. Sure. We also look at the availability of labor. And some markets just incredibly tight. We were really excited to go look at the Washington DC kind of Maryland, Northern Virginia market restaurants tend to perform really well in these markets. And we spent about a week there and I'm not exaggerating, like it was noticeable. You'd go out to these kind of fun, cool, hip restaurants that were rated highly on Yelp. And the servers would be 65 years old. I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) And, (laughs) And it just stood out. And not that there's anything wrong with that. We had great service. But it was just noticeable, something you tend not to see in our industry. And when we really dug into it, yeah, this market is very difficult to hire in. And we don't want that. And then, of course, we just look at other governmental regulations as far as our ability to operate. And a lot of those regulations and taxes really manifest themselves for a restaurateur and how much you're paying for rent.
0: When you look to the future, the rest of 2022 and in the subsequent years, What does success look like for you? Where do you see opportunity for growth and improvement at Snooze?
1: I think for everybody in this industry right now, the number one goal is to stabilize talent management and leadership. You read in the news about the great exodus of people that are quitting their jobs and retiring. I think that's been magnified 10 times in our industry. This business is hard. So people that have opportunities to leave often take opportunities to leave. Working in a restaurant, you could always have a job in a restaurant. And I always joke around, like, we don't hire servers or sous chefs. We hire aspiring teachers and musicians and artists or architects, people working their way through school. But the one thing that has always been constant is I can always have a job and a stable job in the restaurant business. I can take a risk and I can fall back and pick up some money serving. And with COVID, that went away. We shut down. We laid off a ton of people. State regulations kept a lot of people out of work, cutting the amount of tables that we can have in restaurants or the amount of patrons that we can seat. And I think that that's been difficult. So for me, what does the future bring? It's all about focusing on just stabilizing our talent and our people and giving them a great reason to be here and a great place to work. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm an optimist. Look, this has been a long, rough ride. The last couple years, we're coming up on two years for our industry. That being said, there is always blue sky somewhere. I travel a lot and it seems like the pilot always says, especially flying out of Denver, that, hey, it's going to be a bumpy ride through these clouds out of Denver, but give us about 10 minutes and we'll see some sunshine. We're going to see sunshine. What we need to do is have the people in place and the enthusiasm to go out and take advantage of it. And there will be great days ahead.
0: This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. There are tens of thousands of restaurant owners and operators listening today. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer?
1: Yeah. I mean, always focus on the things that matter. And remember that the things that matter might not be the things that matter to you. It's what matters to your guest and i think so many of us spend all of our time and energy chasing the wrong things and we never stop to really understand what it is the guests want of our particular brand how do our guests actually use us right i call it how do we use our brand authority to become better at what we do do a little checkup on your brand every now and then and I think signs of a strong brand are having, first and foremost, a highly engaged team base, lots of frequency amongst your guests, guests that write positive reviews. I guess you'd call that passionate guests, passionate followers, right? You've got to have great return on invested capital or don't fool yourself into thinking you're a growth business. The one constant in this industry is pennies do matter and you've got to be a profitable business. Profit, we always say this at Snooze because people say, you ask the question, how do you give 1%? How do you do sustainability and such? Look, profit provides possibility. So that's kind of our mantra with our team. And they know that if they can get in there and run profitable restaurants, the more we grow, the more we give.
0: That's David Burson. For more on Snooze, visit snoozeatery.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.